save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the eighth episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford, and today we have an interview with Joe Lansdale, author of many award-winning novels, short stories, and comic books, and also the author of the forthcoming novel, Vanilla Ride, which will be published by Knopf on June 30th. Reading and Writing Podcast. Today, my guest is Joe Lansdale, the Mojo Storyteller. Lansdale has been publishing short stories and novels since the late 70s. His many stories and novels, often infused with the East Texas region where he lives, have won many awards, including seven Bram Stoker Awards. His novel, The Bottoms, won the Edgar Award for Best Novel from the Mystery Writers of America. His most recent short story collection, Sanctified and Chicken Fried, was recently published by the University of Texas Press. And Lansdale's most recent novel, Vanilla Ride, the latest in a series of novels featuring Hap Collins and Leonard Pine, will be published by Knopf on June 30th. Joe, welcome to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Sure, sure. So I'll just jump into some questions that I have for you. Um, Vanilla Ride, which will be published in a few weeks, is your latest novel featuring Hap and Leonard. Um, I wonder what keeps drawing you back to those two characters and what appeals to you about them. I think for me, they are the epitome of East Texas. And uh, Hap is so much like me, at least his past is so much like me in many ways that uh, it's a natural for me. And when I discovered those characters in uh, the late 80s, when I wrote what was supposed to be a standalone book, uh, I found that two or three years later, I was coming back to them, and I, I've just been with them ever since, at least off and home. Sure, sure. Um, and I, I wondered, uh, Robert E. Howard grew up in a small Texas town and achieved success in publishing pretty much starting out with zero contacts in the publishing world. And I also recently yeah. I also recently interviewed James Reisner, who also grew up in a small Texas town. And yeah, I know up, James. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, he grew up reading pulp adventure stories and, and now is a very successful writer. And you also grew up in rural Texas and have written in a wide variety of genres. Um, do you think there's something in the water in those small towns in Texas? <laughs> <laughs> Please, that believe what it is that there's a, a loneliness and an emptiness in small town East Texas or Texas, at least back then. It's a little less so now because people have so many ways to be in touch with the rest of the world. 
but at that time we didn't have the internet and uh, there there wasn't 24 hour news and uh, there wasn't all that going on so you had to entertain yourself you had to use your imagination and if you were inclined towards creative interest you might be someone who didn't fit in with a lot of the people around a lot of good people but they uh were a lot more down-to-earth, day-to-day people. And a lot of creative people had that sucked out of them until they became purely uh, day-by-day people. And like I said, many of those good people, good, honest work. But for those of us who, I guess like James Reasoner, or myself, Bill Kreider, another one that's from Texas that I would think of, and Bob Howard, of course, I think that it was such a passion inside of us that we either compartmentalized it or just created our own universe in which to exist. And that place mixed with all kinds of influences, comic books. Uh, comic books were probably my earliest big influence, uh, old movies. And then, of course, uh, you know, I read Richard Kipling and Mark Twain. And when I discovered Edgar Rice Burroughs, from that point on, I, was, I knew what I had to do. Great, great. Um, and, and I wonder, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, you, you've published a, a number of short story collections, the, the latest being Sanctified and Chicken Fried. And I, I, and I, I wondered, um, in some of those collections, some of the stories overlap. And, and I wondered if you'd ever considered with Subterranean publishing kind of a, a definitive multi-volume collection of all of your stories, similar to what they're doing right now with Robert Silverberg. Yeah, we discussed it. Uh, I think that we're probably going to do a, a, a best of in about four years or something like that, because by then I'll have a tremendous number of new short stories that are out. And a number of those, I think, are among my best work. And so we'll probably at least do a volume or two volume of the best. And then maybe a few years from that, I feel like I'm still young in my career, but uh, <laughs> uh, a few years from that, we'll probably see about doing that retrospective. You know, and, and a lot of things that have overlapped too, People said, well, you know, you did this book, but this book's got some of the same stories. And my answer to that is, yeah, but the old book is completely sold out, and there are new readers. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I want to give new readers the opportunity to read those same stories, you know. And I always try to put something different or new in a collection so that people can find something they might not have found or arrange it in such a way where stories that were not available before are available there. But I think what a lot of people, especially collectors, forget is that I don't just write for them. Uh, I write for me, and I also write for the new readers who come along that don't have some of the earlier short story collections about them because they're absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and, and I know you have uh, in your career published both short stories and novels and and even uh, comic mm-hmm. books. Um, I, I wondered, yeah. you know, as you've written in so many different forms, um, is there one that you enjoy more than the other? Well, I've also written screenplays, and I've written uh, animated Batman, Superman, things like that. But I'd have to say short stories are hands down my favorite thing. And then after that, novels. And then after that, probably uh, it's it's kind of a toss-up. I've also written plays and had a couple plays uh, uh, performed, one in, in uh, off-Broadway last year. But uh, I really find that short stories and novels are more satisfying and uh, I, I enjoy writing comics and scripts and things like that but it would have to be one two and then the rest of those lump together as three sure and and you still uh you still work on short stories between novels at, at this point how does that work in terms I, yeah, of your... i do i i don't really have a set way of doing it it's just that uh sometimes a short story will come to me um 
And uh, even when I'm writing a novel, and I, I may find that I'll squeak it out somewhere by taking a short break. And though I generally write three hours a day, five days a week, once in a while something will be so strong that I might come in the afternoon or at night and play with it until it develops. And I may be writing the novel uh, during the day and then find that I'm writing this short story. But most of the time, the short stories that I write, the same thing, three hours in the morning, five days a week. And when I get those done, I, I go to the novel. But time to time, time to time, I take a break and do that. And, of course, there's things in there where I write articles. I still do a lot of nonfiction and essays and, and uh, screenplays and things of that nature. And right. I just wrote some animated uh, film stuff for Warner. And what was that? Was that using a, a uh, existing character? I did a Swamp Thing straight-to-DVD film, animated uh, that I'm not sure exactly when that comes out. And then I did a 10-minute Jonah Hex uh, animated piece that's supposed to be, if I understood this right, on the DVD of the Jonah Hex movie when it comes out on DVD. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, I'm curious, from, from reading your various introductions to your short story collections over the years, and as we've already discussed, you grew up in rural mm -hmm. Texas and you struggled, right. to, you struggled to achieve your goals as a writer. I'm curious, now that you've achieved many of those goals, what drives you today when you sit down at your computer each morning to, to, to write? Well, you know, it, the goals are there, that's of course, and I get new goals, but the thing that drives me, the same thing that's always driven me, I love doing this. I love being a storyteller. I, I really do what I do. I would do it if I didn't get paid, although I surely love getting paid, and I'm always concerned about that part of it because I'm a professional writer, and I I pay my bills, I take care of my family, and I make a doing this, so I, I have to keep that in mind. But still, I write what I want to do You know, every time I sit down, even if it's something people say, well, that seems strange. For some reason, I thought, this is a challenge, this is different. And even in times when I've written something when I needed the money, and I, I, I have, I did some pen name work and things when I did the money, I still gave it my best shot within the time limits and constrictions and restrictions of a particular uh, project. But most of that kind of things I did early in my career, and I'm pretty much at a point now where I kind of do what I want to do and have been at that point for probably 20 years. Great, great. And and I'm curious, you, you've mentioned in interviews your appreciation and admiration for many books that, be, that could be categorized as Southern literature, Flannery O'Connor, yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird. And at the same time, you've right. also at the same time, you've also expressed your passion and interest in, in pulp and genre writers ranging from Absolutely. Edgar Rice Burroughs. Robert E. Howard, and many crime novelists. I, I wondered if it was intentional on your part to try to create a combination of those two strands of literature in your own stories and novels, kind of infusing crime and horror stories with, with regional flavor. Well, you know, I don't think that it was conscious of me at first. I, I think that what happened with me is just that uh, when I started out writing, I, I, I felt that the stories were, they just weren't working for me. And then I to pay attention to my surroundings and I begin to use that as my background and by doing that the stories begin to work better for me. I mean I still write the occasional story that's non-East Texas but the largest percentage of them are 
And even the non-East Texas, in the same way that I would say Robert D. Howard, even when he wrote about Conan, he was writing about Texas. He was writing about Texas, and he was writing about Texans. He may have given them a little glitz and some dying cities and things like that and beautiful princesses, but they were still oil field workers and, and uh, prostitutes and all the things that he had grown up around or knew about. So I think in some ways you never get away from that. But when it began to work for me is when I consciously began to put those things in. In some ways, unconsciously, I just decided I was going to write about my place and time, and then the, the, the genres begin to blend. And I always was somebody who might read Edgar Rice Burroughs one day and Hemingway the next. You know, I learned that from Philip Jose Farmer. Stay tuned, and we'll have more of our interview right after this. Kindle Chronicles is a Friday audio podcast all about the Amazon Kindle e-reader. I'm Len Edgerly, and each week I present Kindle news, tech tips, and interview a quote and listener comments. I've been a writer all my life, and I'm doing this podcast because the Kindle has simply renewed my love of reading. I hope you'll stop by for a listen. You can find me at thekindlechronicles.com or by searching for Kindle in the podcast area of the iTunes store. I wonder, um, do you have any specific advice for, for aspiring writers who, who may be listening to, to this interview and, and yeah, wondering? It's, it's pretty much the, the same advice I give all the time is just that you have to read a lot and you have to have regular time to work. You need to put your ass in a chair and write. And that's, that's the best advice I can give anybody. Sure, sure. And, and I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned earlier that, you know, you, you are a working writer and, and I wonder, yeah. um, you know, there's a lot of discussion, I would say definitely, you know, um, on many blogs and, and, you know, also in, in trade journals as well, publishers weekly about kind of the, the current, mm -hmm. the current state of book publishing, um, the rise of, of eBooks with Amazon's mm -hmm. Kindle and the Sony reader. I wonder, you know, what from your perspective as a working writer, you know, if if you if you have any thoughts about kind of where book publishing is now and and where it may be headed in in the in the future. Well, this is kind of complex to answer in a short, you know, spurt. And of course, it's only my opinion, and I'm sure, you know, I I don't, I don't have all of the the answers or the facts or whatever, but. My take on it is that publishing was never meant to be as large as it became. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, Information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C O R I E N T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early 
so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. It was, there have never been that many readers. It's always been a select group. When I was growing up, there were there were very there was no one that read like I did, and I, it wasn't until I started later in life going to conventions and meeting other people who had the same passion and fanaticism as I did. But what happened is, I think in the 1980s, and I think this was Stephen King, and I and I don't mean that for anything against him. That's just sure, what happened. Sure. It wasn't his fault. But I believe he became so popular, and there was just such they they saw that these bestsellers could move way beyond the Arthur Haley airplane novels and stuff like that, which were huge bestsellers at their time. Uh, a lot of genre fiction was considered the backbone of these publishers, and then the bestsellers were a, a gleeful surprise, but then it allowed them to publish a lot of unusual fiction, things that they didn't really make a lot of money on, and the point was to get a profit. But when this came along, everybody decided that they wanted to go like the same way Hollywood was doing after Jaws and, and, and Star Wars, as they wanted the blockbuster novel mentality. And so as they did that, it began to shrink the mid-list, and the backbone that had made all the publishing work began to fall apart. And they tried to make publishing this big, big, big industry, which it really, I don't think, can support and never could. And what I think you're seeing is just a natural correction of things and bringing it back to a smaller business. It used to be family business. It used to be businesses that made a profit, but they weren't multi-million dollar businesses. And when a lot of these companies bought them, they tried to market books the same way they do toilet paper or paper towels. They, they would try to create a brand name, bestseller, writer, and every one of them tried to have one or, you know, and, and uh, that's what they wanted. If they had their, their uh, druthers, they would have had 10 writers for every, every house that were bestsellers and 10 in the wings that were about to be bestsellers. And so a lot of that, I think, happens. So I think you had a lot of self-correction. I mean, I think you're having a lot of self-correction now because the market can't bear that kind of thing very well. Things of that nature. I think that that is a new way books are going to go for some of the younger readers that are coming up, although we're not producing enough readers. But, again, I say, and I'll em emphasize it, never been that many readers, really, not, not dedicated readers. You can't choose the fact that somebody can read makes them a reader. Nor can you say that somebody that buys every book that some best-selling writer puts out one every year also reads everybody else. They may not. Readers like me may read bestsellers. They may read cross-genre. They may read classics. So what's happening is all of this is just self-correcting. And by putting it on e-books, I think it might make it available to a new generation of readers who might not have read it. It's still a, it's still a story, and that's what it is. People want stories no matter how they're delivered. Whatever delivery system doesn't make that much difference. My choice is I prefer books. I don't think books are in any uh, fear of disappearing, but I think that they are in fear of downsizing because a lot of the Barnes & Noble who bought out and killed a lot of these smaller uh, companies or smaller bookstores by cutting the, the prices so much, now I've decided to raise their prices, but people don't want to pay that. They're used to paying lesser prices. So you're starting to have all of these, these things come together in one configuration that's going to cause a, 
uh, I think, a massive change in the book business and the way that writers make money. I, writers used to, when I was a kid, even writers I liked, famous writers, most of them had uh, jobs or make a living. And, I mean, I've made such a good living, I'm, I'm someone who might, you know, be hurt by that particular change in the market. But my honest belief is that's what's happening. We're having a self-correction. It's going back to what it was sort of meant to be in the first place. That, that's interesting. Scary, I, I, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's interesting. I, I, I hadn't heard it exactly articulated the way that, the way that you just did. It, I, I think you can really see that. In my opinion, you can really see that these days in the science fiction and, and fantasy genres because you're starting to see a, a number of small presses who who are who are becoming you know larger presses as they as yeah, they yeah absolutely you have subterranean press which to my take even though it, it's a small press in one way it publishes a large number of books it it pays writers a decent wage they 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 don't publish in large numbers but you know when I was really starting my career places like Doubleday in genre fiction they only published three thousand copies. And uh, if you were, if they might reprint and they might not, if they sold three thousand copies overnight, they might consider reprinting. But a, and a large percentage of that went to library sales. So when they did this, and you had they tried to tie these all these books into this momentum of the movies and the momentum of great uh, bestsellers like Stephen King, and they tried to make every book a bestseller, and they they marginalized the book for their back. These things, these companies have started to collapse, or they've started to have so much money invested that they just really cannot get return on. And so, I think what you're going to see is that happening. Is it self-correcting? As I said, the other thing that would help, that would make this a far more viable industry, is that if you, you couldn't monopolize. The, the industry. I mean, even the place I work for, Random House, and I'm very happy with my publishers, Tanoff, Vintage, they're just great. But you look at it, they own probably at least a third, if not more, of the publishing business. And what used to be is that when you go out and um, so went to sell a book, you could go to several different places. Now, if you go to, say, Random House, or you go to uh, some of these other houses that own, own a bunch of different companies, you're really only going to one place because, you know, they're not going to compete against themselves. They might like a book and feel it belongs in another section, but one section turns it down, it's unlikely another section is going to buy it. It's not that it sure. never happens, but, you know, it's, it's not likely because that's one book company. Back when they had all these book companies, it was different. But writers uh, back in the, the 60s, the 70s, and, and really the early 80s, we're getting very little money for their books. I'm not saying that's a good thing, and I'm, I'm not saying I would like it to go back to absolutely that position, but I'm saying that that's what people forget. The kind of money that writers are getting paid now is tremendous. And one thing that caused that was the fact that a lot of the companies have very inaccurate royalty uh, statements. So they paid you a small amount, and they might keep that book in print for years, like Philip K. Dick at, at, at Ace Books ended up, they sued, and he got some money. I think it was a class suit for a lot of people at Ace. But that was because now, so writers say, well, if I'm not going to get royalties, I've got to get bigger advances. So as you get bigger advances, if a book collapses or doesn't do as well as expected, then that writer's career can be damaged, harmed, or put aside. You have now computers, which have caused even more problems, because if they look at a, at the computer and, they, and the store and they're going to order books and they say, oh, this only sold 3,000 copies, they don't stop to think that this might be 
a short story collection that only had 3,000 copies and therefore did quite well, or 10,000 copies, whatever, or that it was a small press like, say, uh, Subterranean or something, and they sold only 3,000 copies because they only printed 3,000 copies. So a lot of these things have harmed the way people buy books, you know, because they're no longer bought on the basis of, like, this was like a good book that people would want. Everything is computerized, and so you don't always get a fair shake or a fair uh, uh, accounting of what it is that you've actually achieved. And the other thing, too, is that people can look at the computer and say, well, he sold this much. I'm not going to buy these books because he doesn't sell. Well, it never comes into their mind that possibly the reason that that writer didn't sell the other he was their own books to sell, or that they got poor marketing, or that nothing was done properly with the books. Uh, I mean, there can be so many multiple of reasons that are now just boiled down to a number on a computer. Sure, sure. Um, That's probably uh, a lot more than you actually wanted to hear. No, I I I think you you definitely have an interesting um uh an interesting perspective, and I think you know a lot of what you're saying is, is absolutely true. So I think a lot of people will be interested in hearing that. And you've talked several times about the amount that aspiring writers should read, and and how much you read growing yeah. up. I I wonder who you're reading now. They'll read. I read everybody. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, if I read a writer and I don't like their work, I don't continue reading them. But uh, I, I read a lot of different people. I read a lot of older books. You know, um, I'm rereading James Cain's Postman Rings twice right now because I'm writing a little piece on James Cain and that book. But uh, I've, I read a Robert Parker book just the other day. I was dipping into Flannery O'Connor's short stories. I often go back and pick up books that I've read, like Hemingway's books or Fitzgerald's books or Faulkner's books, and I may read a chapter from them or a section I like, not to mention the fact that I'm constantly buying and reading new books. Uh, you know, I, I love all the, all the classic writers of horror, like Robert Block, you know, and, and, and uh, uh, Ray Bradbury when he was his horror stage, and uh, I like his other stuff uh, pretty well, too. Well, there's always somebody I'm reading. The last thing I read uh, before that was a collection of short stories by Ray Bradbury because we'll always have Paris, which was a totally different kind of uh, story than than you normally think of from Bradbury, at least for the most part. A very good collection. It's his his last collection, probably some older material. So I'm always looking for things uh, that excite me and interest me. Sure. And I read comic books, too, you know, same thing. What What are some of the comics you're reading these days? Well, you know, the, I can tell you what I read the uh, last step. I read uh, the collection of, of Turok, Son of Stone, which was from the uh, 60s when I was a kid. I think maybe it might have even been from the 50s because I started reading it when I was uh, very young, and I, and I read them whenever I could get my hands on them. And so it was the collection of those old um, comics. And I read a lot of the old collections, like from D.C. I'll buy the old Flash or the old Green Lantern. And then I read uh, some of the new things, too. You know, uh, I'm trying to think of the one I read that I really liked. They actually made a film out of it, a DVD animated film. It was about the Justice League's formation. Uh, new Frontier, I think is what it was called. Gotcha. And, uh, gotcha. Yeah, and I, I read. I, th- I really loved that. And I've read a lot of comics lately that, you know, I've pretty well forgotten. I read the first 25 of the new spirit at DC and enjoyed those, but felt I'd had enough of those for a while. So sure. I, mean, I, I still read a lot of comics and, and, and I read a lot of books and I read a lot of short stories, which is my favorite form. 
Great, great. Um, I wondered uh, what's on the horizon for you beyond your new novel, Vanilla Ride, which will be published in a few weeks. Uh, well, any, new, any new short stories or novels scheduled beyond yeah, that? Yeah, there's there's a number of short stories coming out. There's uh, uh, different kinds of short stories coming out. There's a new story right now on the Subterranean Press online magazine that's a pure Western. It's called Hides and Horns. And uh, it's... Um, Part of it's a character that I've thought of, of writing in a novel for many years and just never have. And another story, of, a straight Western story, is coming out in Gardner Buswise and uh, uh, George R. R. Martin's Warriors next year. And uh, I have um, uh, uh, Ellen Datlow has a, a collection uh, coming out, an anthology coming out with a story of mine called The Folding Man, which is a, a, an old fashioned, almost pulp nut horror story. Uh, I just wrote a couple of mainstream type stories for uh, uh, some anthologies. So I'm always got these going and I'm starting a new Hap and Leonard novel here pretty soon. Great. Great. Well, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to us. And, yeah. uh, and uh, I really, uh, I, I really appreciate it. And um, so thanks for joining us for our conversation with Joe Lansdale. You As I've said, enjoyed it. thank you. for listening to the reading and writing podcast if you liked what you heard you can subscribe to our feed in itunes or you can leave a review of this podcast on itunes and if you'd like to leave a voicemail we can include your audio comment in a future episode of the podcast the voicemail line is 206-888-2731 again that's 206-888-2731 Thanks again for listening, and we will be back in two weeks with another interview with a writer that you enjoy reading. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.